Friends, so many life-changing things enter this world when Jesus Christ was born. God comes in flesh. The holy and glorious, magnificent creator of all things enters this world in the child Jesus Christ to reveal his kingdom, his goodness, his glory, and his power to us. So of all of the things that we are talking about during this Advent season, and we, are, we talked about love last week, and we're going to talk about joy, and we're going to talk about hope. This morning as we discuss peace, there is something broad and practical about the peace of Jesus Christ that comes inside of the lives of his people. We can find, as Scripture says, the peace of Christ that keeps our hearts and minds while we are in Jesus. This is how Paul talks about peace when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 4. May the peace of Christ keep your hearts and minds. That can happen within us. We can actually find the peace of God amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ. The peace of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of his church as well can be a powerful and magnificent thing. We can learn the peace of God on larger and larger scales, not just inside of our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, but Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace. And we can find peace in larger scales and then we get a glimpse now of the peace that is to come. And a phrase that always amazes me, and we're going to end with this morning, that of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. There is an increasing value to the peace of God in his eternal kingdom. What does that mean? So the peace of God is this powerful thing. And peace, as we pay attention to the Advent story, is a surprisingly common theme, but not just among our sort of normal Advent stories. And in any moment in the Old Testament and New, as we anticipate the coming of the Messiah himself, we get the concept of peace a lot. You see, when Jesus Christ comes, God is meeting a basic human need, an unrelenting need for something that we struggle to achieve on every level. We feel and know the lack of peace. So when Christ comes, God is meeting this unrelenting need inside of us. I came across um, a, a research study recently. Uh, the Barna Research Institute does a lot of work on behalf of the church and religious issues and cultural issues, uh, not just in America, but around the globe. And recently, they did their largest study of uh, young people, so millennials and Gen Zers. And then they discovered that the three most commonly reported emotions of those individuals were uncertainty, fear, and anxiety. That sound about right? A world that just pushes this, creates this. Friends, we live in a world that needs to cause uncertainty, fear, and anxiety. So it is not surprising that we feel it more and more. Not surprisingly though, those who were a part of a community of faith, who were actually connected to their faith, connected to a church, connected to a family that believes as well, they did much better. They reported those at lower levels. My goodness, the felt need for peace. 
But our desire for peace is far more than just a desire for the end of conflict. If this conflict, if this tension would just cease, our need for peace, however, on its most fundamental level is the need for the reign of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not just what needs to stop, it's what needs to come. It's how things need to change. We really do want good to triumph over evil. So we very quickly see when we start to think about peace and what it's like, it's a proactive thing. It's a positive thing. It's not just a negative thing. We want people to put down their swords and their guns and their words. We just need to stop that. Okay, it's that, but it's so much more. And we also know that you and I cannot keep up with humanity's capacity for turmoil. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but we can't keep up with it. Many times, we also cannot keep up with the amount of turmoil that sits inside of our own souls. So we need a peacemaker to come. It's not just that we need it. I think most of us, at a moment's reflection, feel we need a peacemaker to come. So the biblical idea of peace is exactly this kind of thing. It is the end of conflict and evil, eventually, Plus, it is the coming of abundant life in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament word for peace, shalom, is not just may there be no tension in your life. It's may the blessing of God enter your life. May you flourish in the goodness of God more and more. So that's freedom from certain things, but it's also the presence of God more and more. And the Greek word in the New Testament, irene for peace, picks up the same concept. May you be blessed in the presence of God. May you flourish as a child of God. So we notice as we sort of begin to open up scripture here, the peace of God takes what was broken and makes it whole again. It overcomes unrighteousness with the power and the goodness of God. With the power and the goodness of God. So let's begin to read. A story that, again, this time of year is maybe very familiar. Maybe you've already watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and you know this story. Chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1. Let's at least pick up some of this passage. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all the world that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. In those days, this is what Caesar Augustus did. It was the first one of these, and it happened when this guy was governor. The Gospel of Luke roots the story of Jesus Christ in real history. 
This is not mythology. This is not something that happens in the ancient fuzzy past, but it happens inside of time in history. These are real rulers. These are real kingdoms making real decisions that affect people and seem to affect them, at least at first, negatively. These are real folks who are pregnant and now have to cross country to get to where they need to go. This is rooted in reality. The story of Jesus Christ connects with the human experience. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is real as he becomes one of us. So Caesar in Rome doesn't care at all what's happening in Nazareth or Jerusalem or Bethlehem, but he decrees a census is going to happen. So everybody has to shuffle back to their hometown. So Caesar decrees a census, and it forces Joseph and Mary in their soon-to-be-born Babely all the way to Bethlehem, all of which fulfills Old Testament prophecy. God said this would happen. God said this is where the Messiah would be born, and it actually happened. And this is why, this is how, this is the vehicle that God used, a decree from Caesar that shuffles almost everybody's life. I think this is important for us as we try to understand the peace of God. Where do we find it? What is it like? Think of it like this, an international decree that is utterly out of the control of Joseph and Mary is completely in the control of the God of the universe. It's out of their control. It's out of our control. It's not out of our God's control. Do we begin to see how the peace of God can work? Is there peace in that understanding? Is there peace inside of that notion? So a very pregnant Mary takes an Uber from Nazareth she got the nice one, so she got room to spread. She rides a donkey from the north end of the nation all the way down south to Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, in the town of Bethlehem. By now, the town of Bethlehem is overflowing with people who've done very much the same kind of thing. They're of the house and lineage of David. They've got to go back to Bethlehem so that everyone can get counted by the time they show up. There's no formal lodging left, as you might put it, so they find themselves in the cheapest hotel room possible. They're in a stable, and this is where Jesus is born. This is where goats and donkeys are born. Could anything look less like a cosmos-changing event than this moment? But it is, in reality, the planting of a seed the seed of the kingdom of God among us. It will grow amongst God's people. It will become a tree, and in its time it will bear fruit and become the tree of life itself. The seed, so to speak, is planted now at the birth of Jesus Christ. Do we have the eyes to see what's happening in this passage of Scripture? So the story continues in Luke chapter 2. We make our way to verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. 
And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What an incredible moment. At the same time there are Shepherds doing their thing in the middle of the night, and they're watching the flock on a hillside near the village, this town of Bethlehem. And even though the birth of Jesus Christ happens in a way that is initially very obscure and almost nobody else knows, God announces the birth of his Messiah. But he announces the birth of Jesus Christ to a group of shepherds. If we were to create a ladder of social influence, the shepherds would be all the way at the bottom of this ladder. They're just amongst the most common of the common people, not only in the culture of that day, but even in the little village of Bethlehem. And I love this, I love this story because the one who is to become the good shepherd is announced with all possible fanfare and glory to a group of shepherds out watching their sheep in the middle of a field. And they get the full treatment. It's not just the angel, it's a choir of angels that eventually show up. The glory of the Lord shone around them. This kind of thing happens a handful of times in Scripture. And it's always a moment at which God is revealing himself to someone or to a group of people in a very unique and powerful way. But when the glory of God shows up, it is too much for people. It is too bright. It is too great. It is too holy. It is too righteous. It is too weighty. It is too much. And when the glory of God shows up like this, there's just a glimpse of it, but it overwhelms the people who see it. Every now and then, Scripture even says they fall over as if they have died. And then someone's got to go pick them up, and here we go with the conversation. This is the power of the glory of God. This is the weight of the glory of God. Scripture even tells us that the glory of God, when it shows up, even a fraction of it, it shakes the foundations of the earth. So how in the world are you and I supposed to stand in the presence of the glory of God? So as the glory of God shines around these shepherds. It says, and they became very afraid. So the angel says what angels say every time in the Advent story, fear not, fear not. There's something power and powerful inside of that. See, the glory of God is righteous and holy and unswerving in its perfection. And I am a sinner lost in my sin. I am twisted in my very core. I cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. It is a moment of fear for me. But the angel says, look, the glory of God has shown up on your behalf. Don't be afraid of this moment. This is good news for you. 
This is good news for people. This is good news for the children of God because the Messiah has come. This is the glory and power of God revealed on your behalf. Now is not a moment to be afraid, but it is, in fact, good news of great joy. Our Savior is born. The long-promised, long-anticipated Son of David has come to earth, and these shepherds would have known this story. They most likely would have been a part of those amongst the people of God who have been longing for this moment. So when the Savior comes, the promise of God's salvation has come for his people, their redemption from their enemies, especially their redemption from sin, and the promise of the king. And suddenly, there was a group of angels, a choir of angels around them, and they began to sing. So this choir of angels lights up the night. I just honestly, every time I go through this, I just, I can't imagine myself amongst those shepherds. Or you're on the other hillside and you're thinking, what's that? And they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is their song. It's a song of glory to God. And that glorious, holy, righteous, all-powerful God now is granting peace on earth, peace to the people of God. The coming of the Messiah brings the promise of peace on earth. Honestly, this is shocking to us. So we look around us and we don't see it. We look within us and we don't always feel it. But the promise of the Messiah, nonetheless, is the promise of peace on earth and peace among those who belong to Jesus Christ. When we think of peace amongst the people of God, we're going to talk about how this works, but I want to think in these terms. Peace is trust in God's goodness and sovereign power. Peace is, or peace can be found in the trust that we place in the goodness of God, that all he is working is for the good of his will and the good of his people, and in his sovereign power. His peace is greater than all turmoil, all fear, all anxiety, all concern. Here's where we start to find peace. So God's promise, that God's promise of peace unfolds in our lives and will eventually rule over all things. If nothing else, I want us this morning to have this sense of the peace of God enters in this this unremarkable way from a human point of view in Bethlehem in that stable and grows and grows and grows until we see him face to face and then this is still just so amazing to me. It continues to grow and grow and grow. Peace is a proactive, powerful thing. So God's promise of peace is unfolding inside of our lives. Here's how I think we can look at peace, specifically in the Christmas story and in the scriptural story as well. First of all, this promise means peace with God. 
We read the passage from the Gospel of Matthew. The angel tells Joseph, you're going to give this son the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the reconciliation that God brings that we cannot perform. We need it. We need reconciliation with God, but we don't have the moral wherewithal, the intellectual capacity to make it happen so God comes and provides a way. He provides peace with God for his people. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, put it like this. For in him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In another place, the Apostle Paul says, When we were dead in our sins, we were actually enemies of God. We were moving in the other direction. We were rebelling against God. We were ignoring God. We were pretending he doesn't exist. So Christ comes, and in his body, he reconciles all of that. And he provides peace between sinful human beings and God. This is the first peace. And for the Christian, it is the eternal peace with God. God makes a way where we simply cannot find or make a way. So he sends Jesus Christ to reconcile us to himself. And notice this as well. It is a cosmic reconciliation. So it is the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ for all of those who would put their faith in their trust and believe in Jesus Christ. But then we discover in the biblical story, it actually turns out to be everything. He's going to reconcile the brokenness of creation. He's going to put all of that back together again. And as the story continues and increases and increases, the kingdom, the reign of God gets greater and greater and greater. There's a new heavens and a new earth all together for his people to dwell in. This is, this is a cosmos-changing event. So this promise means peace with God. And this promise means God's peace can be inside of our own lives. It can be inside of our own lives. I say this from time to time because I think it's important to say this kind of stuff. I put this out there for you not because I have figured this out and Pastor Phil just lives in a perfect state of peace from morning until night. You can ask Heather, that's all I do. I'm just, whoo, man, it's almost frightening. It's not what happens. I don't say these things because I have found the secret or I live there. I say these things because they're true, because they are biblically given to us, because this is how God wants to work in the lives of his children. This is how God leads us further and further into his kingdom. This is the process of what we in, uh, in Christian circles and in scripture call sanctification. The Holy Spirit's work inside of us making us more and more like him and less and less like our sinfulness. The promise of God's peace means God's peace can be inside of our lives. So here's the rule and reign that Jesus brings. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's it's not a thing of, the kingdom of God is not about the, the, the normal, broken, material things of this world, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the kingdom that Christ brings into the hearts of those who belong to him. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is righteousness and peace 
and joy. What Christ brings into the lives of his people is not dependent upon the normal ups and downs of this world. If only my guy would get elected, then I would be at peace. If only my retirement account sort of hits that mark, then I'm going to finally be at peace. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking in these things. It's about what the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is doing inside of his church. He's doing inside of the lives of his people. And it's stuff like righteousness and peace and joy. You see, Caesar can decree whatever Caesar wants to decree. It's not going to change the peace that Jesus Christ can bring inside of the lives of his people. And it's entirely dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do inside of us. Paul puts it like this when he writes to the Galatians. And he tells us what the fruit of the Spirit are. Think of the fruit of a tree. The fruit is what naturally comes out of a healthy tree. If a tree is planted and it's being watered, what's inside of the genetic structure of that tree, the DNA of that tree, is going to eventually naturally just show up as an apple, as a peach, whatever it is. It's the fruit. It's the result of the working of the inside of the tree. The fruit of the Spirit is what happens when the Holy Spirit is coming out of us, when the Holy Spirit bears His fruit within us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. May our hearts and minds be ruled by these things. May our homes be ruled by these things. May our communities be ruled by the fruit of the Spirit. How different would life be if this is what was coming out of me? This is the promise of the work of God inside of our lives. Peace can become a part of who we are when he rules and reigns and has his way. So it means peace with God. It means that the peace of God can actually be in us, can keep our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. But the promise is also for an eternal, ever-increasing peace. I'm going to go back to the book of Isaiah. We read this powerful passage after worship as we were praying together this morning. And I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, the first few verses say this, beginning in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is the promise of the son of David. Jesse is David's father. It looked like that line was gone. It appeared there would be no more earthly king from the line of David. But you see Isaiah saying it looks like a stump, but in reality there's going to come a shoot. It is not dead yet. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jeff, Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, 
but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the promise of the son of David and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The Lord's work is described to us in these first six verses of what will be in the Messiah, what he will be, what his rule and reign is like. We won't this morning walk into it in detail, but again, just listen to it like we did the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to again what the character of the Messiah is, what the work of the Holy Spirit is in the kingdom of God. It is full of wisdom and understanding of right Counsel, counsel that aligns with the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of God. It is full of power, God's power. It is full of the knowledge of the Lord and the awe of God. This is what the Spirit of the Lord will do. This is who the Messiah will be. And notice as well that there is righteousness and justice in the reign of the Messiah cannot separate the kind of peace that God brings from his righteousness. There will have to be judgment. Wickedness will be gone. In fact, this passage that begins so beautifully, and watch this happen sometimes. If folks quote or walk through this Isaiah 11 passage talking about the Messiah, they'll stop before they get to what we finished with. Justice has to come and it will come by the hand of the Messiah. God will get rid of wickedness. We cannot hold on to unrighteousness. We cannot pretend to define good and evil for ourselves and simultaneously find the peace of God. We can't do it. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11 tells us the discipline, the discipline of the Lord actually produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So God's work inside of us, getting rid of all of that sin and brokenness, produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So friends, we cannot experience God's peace and celebrate sin or perpetuate the beliefs and behaviors that do not honor God. When the power and the peace of God comes inside of our own lives and eventually as Christ rules and reigns over all, Wickedness and the wicked will be gone, and the righteousness of the king will reign. (laughs) Look at verse 6. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Everything described to us about the kingdom of God in that passage is unnatural to us. 
My personal opinion, there won't be snakes in heaven. Okay, just my personal opinion. But everything described there to us, those things don't go together. It's unnatural to us. Why? Because what is natural to us is the curse of sin. That's what we're used to. That's what we see unfold around us. You see what Isaiah is, is giving to us. He's giving us eyes to see what the kingdom of God does, the kind of peace that is brought by the kingdom of God. The way God organized things in the first place, that's how he's going to put it back together again. Why is this going to happen? How will this happen? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is an incredible, universal promise of what is yet to come. But that seed is planted. It begins, or it starts to show up among us now when Christ is born and the angels declare peace on earth because of the coming of Jesus Christ. So what happens with the peace of God is both now and not yet. It has come. It is available to us. We truly can find it, and we will be able to taste it in this life. But its fullness and its glory and its universe-changing reality is still yet to come. The early church father, Augustine, as he finished this great, big, long tome of a book called The City of God, and he's talking about the differences between the, city of, the cities of this world and what the city of God is like. And he finishes it by looking ahead to the coming of this eternal peace. And here's part of what Augustine says. There, meaning in the kingdom, eternal kingdom of God, there we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. For what other end do we propose to ourselves than to attain to the kingdom of which there is no end? There we're going to rest. We will see. We will see and we will love and we will love and we will praise. God's kingdom without end. Amen. Turn back a couple of pages. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read this part of this during our time of worship this morning. I told you last week we may come back to this. I just keep coming back to this one this, this season. But I want to read verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. The rule of all things will be on the shoulders of Christ now. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He wants to do this. His zeal, his power, his glory, his perfection will bring this about. 
the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. These kinds of things deserve our attention, our meditation, our devotion, because only God can bring this kind of kingdom among his people. I want to think for a moment before we wrap up with some of these thoughts. How can I know this peace? How can I taste this now? It's been made available to us. The promise has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is with us here now today, and one of the fruit of the Spirit of God among us is the peace of God. Where do I find this? How do I find this? I'll give you just a handful of very straightforward thoughts. First of all, I need to know Jesus. What we do together on Sunday mornings cannot be just simply uh, an intellectual exercise, an active habit we just kind of do, and especially when we kind of get close to the holidays, maybe we should sort of, you know, jump back into that. We can't do that. You cannot rely on my relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot rely on your grandparents or parents' relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to know Jesus. You need to be in relationship with him. You need to know his word. You need to be able to hear his voice inside of it. You need to learn how to be in an active prayer life with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're not going to find this peace. You're going to want it. You're going to need it. You're going to hunt for it. You're not really ever going to find it until you know the Prince of Peace himself, until you know Jesus Christ. Jesus the King, the Prince of Peace, needs to rule and reign in my life. I need to see more clearly what we said earlier inside of this sermon this morning. That finding the peace of God is to trust his goodness and to trust in his sovereign power. Whatever I cannot control, whatever I cannot figure out, I have to learn how to lay it at the feet of the Prince of Peace. I need to know Jesus. Let me say this as well about the peace of God. I need to endure. I can't just pay a couple of minutes attention to it. And this is natural inside of our lives. We go through our own cycles. I need to, oh, I need to get back into this. I need to uh, pay more attention to my relationship with Jesus. I know these things are natural within us, but we need to hear this. We need to endure in this relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to endure in our understanding of the peace of God and our trust in his goodness and in his power. Plenty of things in this world and in my life are broken, and we will be tempted by fear and anxiety and uncertainty. There is something sometimes, and I think this is just part of the brokenness of the human heart. There is something, this is, sounds strange, but I think we understand what this means. There is something comfortable about fear and anxiety. That this becomes a tool that we use to sort of manage ourselves and the world around us that otherwise we can't control. We want to control it. We want to put it in order. And so oftentimes we do that through fear and anxiety and the way those things come out of us. Sometimes even hate and anger. So we're going to be tempted by those things. They're going to feel right to us. And as a matter of fact, different things have been given to us. That is the peace that belongs to Jesus Christ. I will be tempted to find some other king, to find someone else who promises a resolution to all of these things. 
I need to endure my attention to and devotion to the Prince of Peace. And let me say this as well. I touched on this earlier, but now we need to sort of bring it home. We need to pursue holiness. We need to pursue holiness. God's peace is inseparable from his righteousness. We've seen this in a few passages of Scripture. So again, we cannot just assume I'm going to live life however I want to live it and use Jesus to get a shot of peace from time to time. It's not how the peace of God actually works. We must pursue holiness. And then finally and ultimately, one way or another, we need to come to terms with this. We need to put your trust in the coming of the King. Just as surely as Jesus came on that Christmas morning, Jesus is coming again as King of Kings. The birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem was foretold in the Old Testament, and it literally, actually, historically, physically happened. The second coming of Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom, to enact all justice, and to bring all peace and righteousness was foretold in the Old Testament, and it is actually, historically, physically coming. Put your trust in the coming King, Jesus Christ. I love this little section out of a book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. A little bit like what we read with Augustine earlier on, he also reflects on what this is like. And I like this passage because it kind of helps us grab a little bit more of what it means to live in this ever-increasing government of Christ. This ever-increasing government of his righteousness and of his peace, of which there will be no end. He says it like this. It is instead peace as wholeness, a fullness of function as the restful but unending creativity involved in a cosmos-wide cooperative pursuit of a created order that continuously approaches but never reaches the limitless goodness and greatness of the triune personality of God, its source. We are ever moving forward. We are ever working. We are ever more restful and engaged in the kingdom of God that is forever making its way toward the absolute glory and perfection and vastness of our God. At the end of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, there's a last battle, and he begins to draw out this image of those who are actually entering into the kingdom of God. They died in this world, but they've passed through a doorway and they're on their way into the kingdom of God. And as those last couple of chapters move along, something really cool begins to happen. The beasts and the people who are there and they realize what is happening now, they start running and running and they just keep running and they have all of this strength and they're running toward the king. They're running toward a mountain. And the call at the end of that book is further in and further up. And it's this image, the people of God 
who have finally realized what has happened, who are finally in the kingdom of the king himself, who will forever make their way further and further into the fullness and the goodness of God. Peace on earth, the angels proclaimed. We taste it now. And friends, if you're a child of God, you will live in it forever. Let's pray. 